comes from John chapter 4, verses 13 through 26. Uh, we're going to be reading that in the ESV, so we encourage you to look up that scripture. Um, and uh, we're going to be referencing it throughout the message. Um, as you look that up, just to let you know, we're starting a new sermon series uh, this week that will go probably five weeks. Maybe if the Spirit leads, we'll add on a sixth there. Uh, but it's about life in the Spirit. It's about um, how we kind of navigate this current moment that we're in and uh, how we do that in the Spirit of God. And so, again, our scripture today is John chapter 4, verses 13 through 26. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, we're going to be going through this sermon series, uh, Life in the Spirit. And, um, you know, like I said, we're in a very particular cultural moment. Um, but is it just a moment? Um, so the graphic here is of somebody trying to change a light bulb. And it makes me think about, um, you know, the, the old joke. Uh, it, this joke has been, it, you take it and there's variations of it, just an infinite number of variations. How many such and such people does it take to change a light bulb? And so, you know, the joke, you, you could insert whoever you want, you know, how many LGM people does it take to change a light bulb? You know, how many uh, Michiganders does it take to change a light bulb? Whatever. Um, but the one that I heard that I, I always remember that I think is kind of funny was one about United Methodists. So, you know, LGM is United Methodist Church, but it could easily just be Christians. But I'll just tell it because I heard it as United Methodists. How many United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is... Change? Th thank you for very subtly chuckling, David Beck. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a dad that I think that's funny. By the way, did you notice in this graphic over here that they're changing a lit light bulb? But whatever. It's just, <laughs> it's just uh, you know, clip art or, or whatever, the stock image. Uh, so, you know, uh, 
if you are going to change a light bulb, the, the first thing that I think you have to face is that you got to change it. And change can be kind of difficult. And, and one of the things that, that I wanted to point out is that this is not the first time that we have been in a moment like this where people are like, man, things need to change, right? There's something wrong, right? There's something rotten in our system. You know, but this is the thing. Many times it is just a moment, right? People feel like that for, I don't know, a few days. Maybe if it's really bad, you know, a few weeks, maybe like a month. But how long does it take for us to go back to quote-unquote normal, for really nothing to change? You know, I, I think about all the times when, um, you know, there's like a shooting in this country, and then there's all these people crying out, this is the time, this is the moment when we need to change our gun laws, right? Where we need to make some real changes, policy changes. And then nothing happens, right? Nothing happens. Everything goes back to normal until the next tragedy, right? And the cycle just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. And what I would like, brothers and sisters, and the reason why this is a five-week series or more, depending on how the Holy Spirit moves, uh, the reason why is because I think it takes more than just a moment. I think that what probably a lot of people are recognizing is that in order for us to really change, we need to go through a journey. And one of the things that I kind of noticed is that um, as I was kind of reflecting on sometimes how change happens and sometimes, you know, the real moments where um, something gets disturbed in the waters of society and then, you know, people are kind of shaken up by that, right? People are like, dude, there's something wrong. I, I, I noticed that it seems to kind of mirror at least if you re- really want real change and not just a moment, that that process seems to mirror the five stages of grief. The five stages of grief are meant to describe kind of personal grieving, but as I've been reflecting on it and praying on this and you know, just doing a lot of um, meditating on the Word of God and just seeing how all these things fit, and it, it kind of struck me that... Um, I feel like the five stages of grief, um, though it may not be perfect, but we're going to use that as a template because I think it kind of works, right? And well, you know, that's why it's a five-week sermon, right? Uh, five-week sermon series. And um, the first one, as you can see, the first step is denial. Do you think that's the first stage of the process we're in? Because this is the thing. You might have noticed this, but whenever something like this happens, any tragedy, think about it, any tragedy, right? You think about the Holocaust. You think about 9-11. You think about some of the really horrible school shootings we've seen. You think about this moment. There are some people who literally deny that it actually happened. Have you noticed that? Like, there's the Holocaust. There are some people who still believe to this day that the Holocaust didn't happen. Didn't happen. Global conspiracy, right? There's some kind of agenda. No, no, can't be true, right? Some of the school shootings. There are some people who think that that, uh, Newtown, Sandy Hook, didn't actually happen. There are some people that were saying, you know, when you look at this video, right? When, When you look at the video with George Floyd, I don't know, there's something about it that just looks kind of staged. Have you seen this? There's some people who think that this was staged. Now, by the way, I, I think it's kind of 
you know, not the majority of people, right? It's kind of a fringe. But what I want to point out is there is a human tendency, a natural human tendency that is, is, uh, identified by the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, is that in the face of of something really traumatic, there is a natural tendency for us to be like, "Mm, no, nah, that can't be. That's not right. Where we just don't want to believe it. Now, maybe many of us are not as bad as a conspiracy theorist who, you know, comes up with some elaborate theory. Oh, this was staged. This was actually like a movie crew that put the, right? Like, we're like, okay, that's a little crazy. But could it be that for many of us, maybe the stage of grief of denial is being able to just kind of forget that this happened, right? Maybe you can't deny that it happened, but you forget that it happened. Like I said, many times we, we, we get in a moment where we're like, Things need to change. Things need to change. And then the moment passes. And it's like we all forgot. Could it be kind of a form of denial? Well, I guess it wasn't that bad, right? For many of us, brothers and sisters, if we want this moment to be more than just a moment, we got to get through that. And there is something very, very important that we have to face. There is a reason why the first stage is denial. It's the reason, there's a reason why the first stage is for us to look the other way, for us to, to just kind of distract, or for us to want to move past this, for us to, to kind of just sort of put it out of your mind. And I think Jesus recognizes that. When we look at the story, of the woman at the well. So this is a very uh, famous story. Um, we, we can't go through the whole thing because it's a pretty long story. But just to kind of catch you up, that Jesus uh, is traveling through Samaria. And he goes to uh, this well where he, it's, it's about noon. It's really hot outside. And so he's going, you know, presumably to get a drink because, you know, it, it's, a very hot climate, right? And noon, there would have been a blazing sun, most likely. And um, Jesus is at this well, and his disciples have gone into the city to get some food because it's around noon, it's around lunchtime. And there's a woman there who's getting water. It, it's very interesting. Who gets water at noon? In this society, not very many people because that's the hottest. You get water in the morning, right? When it's nice and cool or, you know, while the sun is going down, right? But to go to the, the well in the middle of the day means you're either desperate or you don't want to be seen. You don't want to be around people, right? This woman is social distancing, <laughs> but social distancing maybe for different reasons than we are. She is there at this well and we find out later that she's got a history that makes her a social outcast. And so this woman, who's a Samaritan woman, who would have been uh, racially, at least understood in this society, um, they would have thought of, you know, Samaritans and Jews did not mix. They, they, they really hated each other. Um, and uh, also, she was a woman, and it would have been improper for uh, Jesus not being her husband just talking to her in public like this, this would have been very improper. So there's a lot of things going on, right? There's a lot of taboos. There's a lot that would have been very uncomfortable in this situation. I mean, even to think that this woman picked a time when she didn't want to talk to anyone, right? It would have been uncomfortable, 
right? And then a total stranger goes up to her. I know we talked about this uh, when we're talking about uh, the disciples on the road to Damascus and how weird it is for us if a stranger just comes up to you and just starts talking to you, right? But here it happens again. So, uh, you know, Jesus talks to this woman and they start engaging in this conversation and he starts talking about this thing called living water. And so in verse 13, let's pick it up there. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, Right? You drink this water, and it's going to help for a little bit, but it's not going to last, right? Again, are we in a cultural moment where we're drinking of some water, we're trying to do some things, but the moment doesn't quite last for us, right? If you drink of this water, you will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It's a better water. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why will that person not be thirsty again? Is it because they don't thirst? No, it's because they have water that is continually coming up, right? Something internally changes that changes the system, right? It's not just a momentary thing. I drink water and I'm not thirsty, but then I get thirsty later. But continually you're drinking water right? Something very major, something internal, something in the plumbing of everything has to change in order to get that kind of living water that continually comes out. So the woman thinks, hey, I don't like coming out here in the middle of the day. It kind of stinks, right? I don't like coming here at noon, you know, when no one else is around. I don't want to do this. So, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this woman, like many of us, has the impulse of change. Okay, you're, you're, you're offering me some change. Hey, give this to me. I want this, right? But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't just give it to her. Why not? Because, like we said, the change is not just a momentary change. Right? If it was just a momentary change, then he could just say, drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. But remember, it's an internal change. It's a plumbing change. It's a system change. In order to have water that keeps springing up, sorry, I hit my mic there. Uh, in order to keep having water that springs up, something inside the woman needs to change fundamentally. Right, And that is why Jesus' answer is so weird. <laughs> we all want momentary change. We want easy change, right? And so we enter into this moment, we're like, we got to change. We got to change. This is wrong. And most people agree with that. I mean, some of us were in some very serious denial, but maybe for many of us, and this is what's special about this moment, we've moved past the momentary denial, right? People look at the news and they're like, oh my gosh, what happened to George Floyd? Right? What happened to a lot of these people? This is wrong. Right? That this shouldn't keep happening. You know? But it does. It does. It keeps happening. Just like if you drink some water, you're going to get thirsty again. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. It's not just a momentary change we need, there's more. And what Jesus does next is very surprising. Maybe you've read the story before. But just think, this woman just said, okay, you offered me water, give me water. right?" But remember, Jesus said the living water, it comes from within. It needs to spring up from within. So Jesus' answer, it still makes no sense, even when I say that. It says, go call your husband and come here. 
Go call your husband and come here. What? It's a weird response, right? Especially when we find out that the woman says, I have no husband. Now, to be fair, the woman is telling the truth, and Jesus tells us that. But she doesn't tell us the whole truth. Now, Jesus could have very easily said, all right, okay, fair enough, and moved on. You know, that would have been the polite thing to do. That would have been the socially comfortable thing to do, right? Is to just kind of let it slide, right? But Jesus does something profoundly rude, right? This is really rude. He knows something about her, and he says it. Something that's kind of shaming, right? Something that exposes her in the the eyes of this stranger, right? He says, yeah, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, right? Can you imagine you're just talking to someone and you just met them for the first time and you're like, oh, hey, so, you know, you're married or whatever? And you're like, oh, that's a little personal. No, I'm not. Like, oh, yeah, because you've been divorced five times. What? Who the heck are you, (laughs) right? It's really rude. You know, this is not comfortable in any means, right? I I just, you know, if I put myself in this situation, I'd be profoundly, can you imagine you're the disciple that didn't go to town and you're just kind of off in the corner and you hear Jesus talking about this? You're like, Jesus, what are you doing, man? You know, like, dude, I I just really, really feel the the urge to go to the bathroom right now. I really, really feel the urge to go on my phone. I really, really feel the urge to check out because this is really uncomfortable. But notice what Jesus says at the end. This is important. This is the key. Brothers and sisters, you'll blink and you'll miss it. And most of us do. What Jesus says at the end, right? After he says, yeah, you're right in saying that, right? For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What what you have said is true. This is important because the word true is going to come up again. right? I want to show you. So, it continues. The woman changes the subject, right? Wouldn't you change the subject? <laughs> Wouldn't you be like, all right, enough about me. Enough about my five failed marriages. Let's move on to something else. Let's talk religion, right? <laughs> Which is funny, right? I mean, it's probably like one of the most uncomfortable. Right? Like we usually say, don't talk about politics, race, or religion, right? It's just like, like those are the things you don't talk about. But this woman's like, all right, let's talk religion, because that's more comfortable than this. Sir, I perceive, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right? I mean, I know she's changing the subject because she brings up a controversy, right? She's like, you know, she, she's like, over here, Jesus, look over here. Let's bring up a theological controversy that has existed between Samaritans and Jews for many, many years right, for hundreds of years, and let's talk about that, not about my personal life. And so Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. That's important. So what is he saying? He's saying the hour is coming. When 
what? The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This sounds great. This is real, really kumbaya, right? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And we're like, hallelujah! Amen, Jesus! Yes, worship in spirit and truth someday! But that's not what Jesus says. He says, yeah, that's coming. Yeah, there's going to be a time where we worship in spirit and truth. But guess what? That time is also right now. Right where, Jesus? Where? Where? I don't see a church here. Well, I see a well. I see the center of the town that is empty. I see you and me talking to each other, this kind of sort of awkward conversation where you started to delve into my personal life. Yeah, Jesus says, right here, right now. This is the hour where we come to worship in what? In spirit. And we're all like, hallelujah, amen, this is great. In spirit, yes. Yeah, because it's not about form, right? It's not about where you worship, what mountain you worship on. You worship in spirit, duh. But he throws in another word there, spirit and truth. Oh, you guys remember that one word that just kind of slipped in there, right? What you have said is true. Why? Why, Jesus? Why would you ask her about her personal life? Why would you ask her to bring her husband and to expose herself? Why? Because that's the truth. That's the truth of what's been going on with her. That's the truth of why She's here at this well at noon. And it's probably the truth of why she's so thirsty. And Jesus says, hey, this is the thing. If you want to put in new internal plumbing and you want to really change, we got to recognize there's already some things up in there in your internal plumbing that are keeping you from being able to have the living water. So if you really want to change, you need to face it. And if you're going to face it, you're going to have to ask yourself, you're going to have to face some pretty uncomfortable things, right? Brothers and sisters, maybe there's a lot of us that are like, Okay, but Pastor Steve, what the heck does this have to do with us? Have you ever wondered why we don't change in the church, right? How many United Methodists? How many LGM people? How many Christians does it take to change the church? Change? I'm going to ask us some uncomfortable things during this sermon series. But maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just something that we just have to face from from. Off the top. We've we got to get this over with. And it is our tendency as a church to choose comfort. The moment that Jesus starts delving into the person's personal life, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yo, look, we're Americans, okay? Jesus, I don't know what it's like there in Palestine, okay? But we're Americans. We don't ask those kinds of things. We don't talk about those kinds of things in church, Okay? Back off. <laughs> That's the way we normally are, because it's uncomfortable. But when you think about it, the American church, 
the Western church is all built around comfort. Let's be honest. Right? What is the recipe for making a megachurch? Make it comfortable. Right? You make the most comfortable parking possible. Oh, it's really easy. We've got many, many ways to come in, right? Like, like you know, you got these wooden pews, right? No, 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 no. We've got to put in, like, nice, comfy recliners, right? You know, each one has to have a couple. I remember the first time I went to a megachurch, and I could bring my coffee in, and it, like, changed my life. I was like, I'm, I'm leaving my church. I'm, I'm coming here. This is great, you know? And there's a lot of people that had that experience. They're like, you know, some of the songs we've been singing, you know, you, you hear the organ music, and it, it's just not comfortable, you know? I, I, I prefer the sound of a guitar. I prefer, you know, um, a certain kind of worship. It's more comfortable to my ears. And you know what? Some of the songs that you're singing, man, they're just really hitting heavy on sin. And so now 95%, 95% of our uh, praise songs really don't mention anything about brokenness. They don't really, I mean, they talk about sin, but it's always sin in the rearview mirror. It's not the reality of sin and brokenness now, right? 95% of our worship songs, they're all triumphant. They're all yes, right? And, you know, a lot of the, the churches we go to, a lot of the churches that, that a lot of the pastors we hear, and I have to admit, I want to be honest, I've been there too. There's a lot of times where, you know, I call it the warm hug sermon, right? Um, I don't want to name names because that's not what this, this sermon is about. But um, there's some pastors, you hear them in all of their sermons. I mean, they're, they're so wonderful. They just feel like a warm hug. God loves you. God is on your side. The favor of God, like all this stuff. And you're just like, oh, it's, it feels so good. Right, and and you just want to come back for that warm hug again and again and again, and then sometimes you read the scripture, and there's a prophet who's like, "You're all sinful. <laughs> you're you're all condemned." And you know what we did with prophets? You know, you know pretty much universally what happened to a prophet. The people killed them. Why? Is it because they they like the people didn't like the truth? Well, maybe. But maybe it was the kind of truth. Because the kind of truth that prophets would talk about were uncomfortable truths. Right? Because I know, yes, God is good. God is loving. And you need those truths. Don't get me wrong. You know, you, you need the forgiveness of God. You, you need a lot of these things that come in a warm hug sermon. Right? But this is the thing. If you want to change, right? I mean, just the very nature of change is uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable. If you want to change your seat, it's uncomfortable. Uh, David Beck, can I mention about the, the curtain thing? <laughs> so, all right. So, somebody who I will not name <laughs> told me <laughs> that every day he wakes up and um, his curtain is broken right? Like the, the, the curtain that blocks the sun. And so there's sun coming into his face. He's like, it's great. I wake up early in the morning. <laughs> you know, but on one level, it's like, why don't you change the curtain? And he's like, well, that requires effort, right? It requires effort. Now, is it really, really uncomfortable to go online and buy a curtain and to put it up and install it? I don't know if it's really uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable, right? If, if I were to say to you, hey, I want you to change your seat. Just change your seat, 
right? That means you have to get up. You, you ever, like, you just get comfortable, right? You're in your seat, and you're just in the position you want to be in. You're like, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move, right? Like, this is so great. And then you have to get up, you know? Like, like someone's like, hey, can you get me a drink of water? And then you get a drink of water. I'm not moving, right? Because to move is change. And change is, by very nature, disrupting your comfort. It always does. Change always disrupts comfort. It always does. So what happens when we seek as almost a good in and of itself, we seek to be comfortable in church. We go to church and we want to be comfortable. And in many ways, we build churches so people will feel comfortable. Hey, you know what? Come to Korean United Methodist Church. Because aren't you more comfortable around Koreans? Aren't you more comfortable worshiping in this way? So come here, you're comfortable. Yee, too truthful? Brothers and sisters, this is the thing. We have to face some of these things. We have to, if you want to change, right? Now, sometimes a certain discomfort becomes more uncomfortable than, you know, basically doing nothing, right? So doing nothing is sort of our baseline for comfort, right? If I just do nothing, right? Like every vacation you go on, right? A lot of vacations, what do you do? You do a lot of nothing, right? You, you, you sleep a lot, you know, you lie on the beach, Right? What'd you do on your vacation? Nothing. That's what you should say. That's what most of us do, right? You just lie on a, right, on a beach towel, right? You're doing nothing. And it's wonderful on some level, right? But there are some times, and this is one of the, these moments, where doing nothing is more uncomfortable than facing some realities. But my question is, how long is that going to last? If the baseline is always comfort, there are some churches that talk about social justice, and they talk about it a lot. And they try really hard to even, like, to integrate, right, to be diverse culturally, and it's hard. Oh, my gosh, it's uncomfortable. I heard someone say, um, Rachel Held Evans talked about a pastor that she knew that was doing this kind of church where there'd be people from, like, different economic backgrounds, right? There'd be, like, really rich people, but also really, really poor people. And some of these poor people, I mean, let's not sugarcoat it, right? It, it, it was uncomfortable for some of the people who weren't around them to be in the same room with them, to see the kind of problems that they had, and vice versa. I mean, you know, it probably wasn't comfortable for people, you know, coming from a different point of view from the one that I'm coming from, right? It's always uncomfortable. And one of the things is, uh, I was reading this book, and she's talking about this wonderful church, and the pastor had this great line. When you come to this church, you are safe, but never comfortable. And we confuse the two. I might be skipping ahead a little bit, but I feel like this needs to be said. If you are in the spirit, you are safe. And I want to be clear. If you're in the spirit, you're not comfortable. Because the spirit's going to change you. Can I get an amen from the four people here? (laughs) Amen, right? If you're in the spirit, you're safe because God is with you, but you're not comfortable. We so easily confuse the two, right? And in the church, we do so at our peril, and the peril is the very soul of the church. So if we keep chasing comfort, you're not going to change. 
or you're, get, you're gonna get to a place where you're like stuck in that comfy chair and you're not gonna wanna get up unless something really serious, something really major disturbs you. And yes, we are in this moment. When we saw that cop kneeling on that man's throat, it made us very uncomfortable. We're very uncomfortable right now. And in some ways, one of the things that I keep hearing from people, when people are saying, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And usually the two pieces of advice, because people want to do something. By the way, the second stage of, of grief is anger. And you definitely see that. We'll get to that next week. Just a little preview. But for many people, like that's why you know, people are marching in the streets because they're like, we got to do something. We got to do something. But this is the most consistent thing. Like seriously, most people, most experts, most people who have been doing social justice work their entire lives, they give these, these two pieces of advice. And it's usually something like this. Educate yourself and do some self-reflection. Do some serious self-reflection. In other words, look at the truth and don't look away. Look at the truth and don't look away. But the truth is really uncomfortable. Um, one of the things I noticed, I, I told this to the prayer meeting participants on Friday, that um, my wife and I have been watching a lot of like social justice movies lately because a lot of them are free right now, which is great. You know, there's Just Mercy and there's uh, The Hate You Give and uh, Selma, and, and they're being offered for free, which is really cool because people recognize we're in this moment and they want to give you some resources that you can learn. You know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, there's a part of me that when these movies came out, they came out before. I didn't want to watch them. Why? Because they make me uncomfortable. What if there's a movie that portrays racial violence? Somebody treated really bad. And, and you, at the end of the day, you're like, I just, I just want to be comfortable, right? I, I just want to rest in my comfortable chair, right? And just sip a drink that's going to, right? Like a nice drink and you know, maybe a snack. And then I'm going to watch racial violence. It makes us uncomfortable. And I have to admit that even still, there are moments where, you know, I've watched some of these things, but it's hard. And I want to look away, right? But I think what people are saying, what a lot of the experts, what a lot of people who are doing this justice work are saying, is please don't look away. Right? One of the things I heard someone say, I'm just going to paraphrase. He said, you know, if you think it's uncomfortable to see police brutality or to see racial violence or to see some of these, these really unjust things, just imagine how uncomfortable it is to experience it. It's that uncomfortable for you to see it. Just imagine how uncomfortable it is to experience it. And this is an uncomfortable truth that we in the church, our natural tendency is to look away. And our natural tendency is to ignore. 
some of these things that need to change. But for this woman, something needed to change, right? And by the way, Jesus didn't come at her and say, yo, leave your sinful life. He didn't say that. I mean, there's other places where that comes, and there might be a time and place for that. I'm not saying that sin is okay, but what the first step was, the first step, you know, because the woman, she's kind of primed. She's like, okay, give me the slipping water. And Jesus says, you know what the first step is? Tell me the truth. That's the first step. Face the truth. If you want to worship in spirit and truth, if there is any hope for the spirit to lead us, you got to face the truth. I mean, it just goes without saying, right? I mean, it's so many people in this moment are saying things like, I mean, you know, not just this moment, but many moments that people get really defensive are like, yeah, but I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. And it's kind of, you know, at some point, it's like nobody's a racist. Like there's people who are like, they do like profoundly racist things, you know, Uh, it's just an easy target. I'm sorry, but Donald Trump has said, like, I'm the least racist person you know. You know, there are people who are white supremacists. They're like part of white supremacist organization. They're like, no, no, I'm not a racist, right? And one of those people even said, uh, this was in uh, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He points out how nobody wants to identify as a racist because racist has become the new term that just means the worst person possible, right? You're the worst person possible. Right? And so, you know, kind of the joke is like, like when someone says, I'm not a racist, but something really racist is going to come out of their mouth. You know, but nobody identifies as racist. Nobody thinks of themselves as a racist. And the problem with that, that uh, Dr. Kendi says, is that when you think that nobody is racist, then you never face the reality. Right? And, and what it's become is instead of being a helpful term to say, when you start grouping people, according to this this construct that we call race. You know, that's racist. And policies and actions. And and I thought what was really helpful for uh, Dr. Kendi was he starts the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, by telling about how he was racist. Ibram Kendi is black, and he's a, a, a major social justice advocate. But he talks about when he was in high school, he gave a speech on Martin Luther King, uh, about Martin Luther King Jr., and he said, a lot of the things I said, I cringe now because they were profoundly racist. And what he meant by that was they reinforced some of the racist beliefs that are in this society. And, and his, his point was, I can be racist, so can you, right? I mean, let's not be proud about that. I can be racist, so can you. But his point was that oftentimes, you know, it's not a label. It's not like, you're a racist, therefore you are condemned to the depths of hell because you're some horrible, horrible human being. He's saying that our behavior can be racist or anti-racist, and, and it can flip-flop. And there can be many moments where you're, you're you know, doing things that are against racism, and there's other times where you just kind of go with the program. And you don't even realize it. And so, brothers and sisters, all that is to say is that we have to face some of these truths, Right? And what Ibram Kendi and maybe you know, some other people are trying to do is to be able to get you to face what you don't want to face. When we look at the history of change with Christians, 
some of the real, real powerful agents of change. Um, it's got to get at something. And what it needs to get at is the heart of the matter. Um, F.B. Meyer said, the one thing that pierces the heart of God with unutterable grief is not the world's iniquity, but the church's indifference. What we have to get at the heart of the matter is being able to face what is really within you. Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This, by the way, is a story about sin. Um, This is a psalm of David. And David was a great king, somebody that we look up to, but he was not perfect. And one of his worst mistakes that's recorded in Scripture was he saw a woman, Bathsheba, and he wanted her. And so he conspired to have her husband killed, put her, put her husband in the front line of battle so he would die in war so that he could take Bathsheba as his own wife. Doesn't think anything of it. I'm a king. I don't, I don't know how David rationalizes this. But one day, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, hey, David, I want to tell you a story. There's a rich man who wanted to, uh, he wanted to throw a feast for his friends, and um, he wanted you know, to serve food. And so you know, he thought to himself, hey, I got these fields of sheep, and this would be great. You know, to serve sheep. But I don't want to serve one of my sheep. So he goes and he sees a poor farmer who has only one sheep. And he takes the man's one sheep and he kills it. And then he serves it to his friends. And David gets enraged and he's like, this man must be punished, right? This is terrible, right? This is unjust. And then One of the most famous phrases in scripture that I'm going to quote in the King James because you may have heard it. Nathan says, thou art the man. Modern translation, you, David, are the man. It's you. It's you. It's you. And the Psalm, Psalm 51 is all about this need for repentance and, and, and David realizing his sin. He weeps, he fasts when he realizes what he's done. He didn't realize it before. You know, he, he didn't want to face the truth that he was capable of something that vile, that evil. Somehow it became rationalized. But here, you know, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Another translation for it is in my inmost parts, in my inner self, in the parts that I try to hide away, you desire truth, you see it. It is exposed before you, right? Darkness is as light to you. I can't hide from you. I can't hide these things. Search me and know me. Search me and know my thoughts. Search me and know my hearts. Find the offensive ways within me. And brothers and sisters, there's some things that in the church, man, it's hard. It's hard. We see some things and we don't know really how to face it. You know, it's one of the things, I'm just going to say it. You know, you do with it what you will, brothers and sisters. But LGM, we, we don't, it, it doesn't say Korean 
Living Grace Ministry. It doesn't say Asian Living Grace Ministry. And there are people who come who are not Korean, who are not Asian. Some of them stay for a little bit, but many of them don't. I know, I know, I know it's uncomfortable, right? But stick with me for a little bit. Don't change the channel, please. Hear me out. There are things that maybe we don't mean to do it, right? And there are some people who have told me, Pastor Steve, I just don't feel comfortable here. And this is the thing. Why? 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 Yes, I know we said, you know, discomfort and all these things, but I think what they really mean is I don't feel safe here. Why? Is it because we're overtly racist? I mean, I got to be honest, sometimes there's overt racist things I see in LGM. There's a time where there's a, um, there's a black man who was visiting our church. I'd never, I, I think he had come once before, and he was sitting towards the back. And there's somebody who, uh, when he came and sat down, maybe two minutes after this person came, and, and oh, sorry, it was during praise, so he was actually standing, that there was someone who was next to him who just got up and moved to another row. I don't know why they did it. You draw your own conclusions. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? But is there something within us? Is there something within our society that it's very easy to say, you know, I don't see color, which is, I mean, it's it's just, it's a convenient lie, isn't it? I treat all people equally. I don't have a racist bone in my body. You hear people say that. But I mean, you know, just a lot of Asian cultures, Koreans are one of them, are monoethnic. I don't think that's a term, but I just made that up, right? It's like one ethnicity. People all look the same. And yes, Korea has been through a lot of crap. And there are reasons why we stick to our own. There are many reasons why. But we have to face the fact that we do if we want to change. We have to face the fact that when we're not in the crosshairs, and it's not fashionable to do it, by and large, we don't step up when it's black and brown people, not yellow people. Right? We're starting to step up now. And I recognize this moment is different. But if we don't get past the fact that change is really uncomfortable and real change is really uncomfortable, right? Real change is real uncomfortable because there might be, need to be some things that change structurally, how we do things as a church, how we do things as a people, right? I want to end by looking at um, the uh, 
These are the 12 steps. So again, in the history of the church, there have been people who have changed. One of the very powerful agents of change is something called Alcoholics Anonymous, started by Christians. And if you read the 12 steps of the Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll know instantly that they're Christians. I mean, it's just hard to deny. I'm going to show you seven of the 12 steps, um, and, and the, the first seven steps. And I want to show you um, how change happens, because millions of lives have been changed by Alcoholics Anonymous, by, by the process, the steps. There are steps, brothers and sisters. But I want to show you there's a common theme to a lot of the steps. So uh, let's take a look. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over. Now, in their charter, because it's Alcoholics Anonymous, it says alcohol, right? But I put a blank because it can be anything. It can be any sin. It can be any problem, right? We admitted we were powerless over sin. We, were, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. What is that, brothers and sisters? What is that? Truth, an uncomfortable truth. Our lives have become unmanageable, right? I have a problem, is is what people usually say. It's the first step of of an addict um, getting getting healed. Because if you're like, ah, you know, it's not that bad. You know, I can stop whenever I want to, right? Then you will never get help. You'll never change, right? You have to recognize that there is a problem. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Okay, now if number one was truth, our lives have become unmanageable. What is number two? Spirit. What is spirit? Spirit is what can actually change you. Spirit is the living water. Spirit is the ability for God to move in your life. So in the, the, these 12 steps, it's very important to recognize, yes, you are powerless, And that's what's so hard to face. One of the stages of grief is despair or depression. You get to the place where you're like, dude, there's no hope. There's no hope. So if you just face uncomfortable truths all the time and there is no hope, I mean, yeah, it's very difficult to stay there. There's a lot of people who will just distract or they'll just try to make the best of it. They'll turn to things like alcohol. If all you have is despair, But number two is the hope, and the hope does not naturally come from you. It comes from God. God has the ability to change your life. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Right Again, spirit. Number four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. What does that mean? That means they scoured their life. They reflected. They looked ruthlessly at their life and said, what is wrong here? What is that? Truth, right? You get spirit and truth, (laughs) truth and spirit, spirit and truth. You need both, right? Uh, We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs truth. We are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, spirits. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of things that we're going to need to face. One of the things that we have to recognize that's not said entirely in the 12 steps but it's implied. God is very powerful. 
right? That's reflected in the 12 steps. God can change your life. Amen? Can I get an amen from the four people here and everyone at home? Amen! God can change your life. God is able. He has, right? God can change your life. He can and he wants to. That's the part that gets me. He wants to change your life. He loves you. He already knows you're a sinner. He already knows you're broken. He already knows that we have racism in our hearts, in our structures. He already knows. The question is, are you willing to face that reality? Because God can't change you without you. That's what the woman at the well wanted. Change me without me. Give me water, I'll just drink it. It's like a magic pill, and then, bah, my life is better. Jesus says, I can't change you without you. There's a huge blind spot in your life that you're not facing. So we're going to take a look at it. What is true about you? I need you to see your sin. I need you to see your brokenness. And this is the thing with the Spirit. You have absolute safety in that. God does not condemn you for your sin. God forgives you, right? God loves you. And as a child of God, if you have been born of the Spirit, then you now belong to the Spirit, right? Now you belong to God. You're a child of God. You cannot be disqualified because you're racist or you've done racist things, or because you're sinful, or because you're complacent, because you like comfort. Brothers and sisters, we all do. You know, we all have a tendency to stereotype and to to just look at certain things and to generalize experiences based on past experiences. I know some people who hate dogs. Like, what kind of Christian are you? You hate a dog? What? But this is what happened. They got bit by a dog once. Or a dog was really, really vicious. And it traumatized them. And every time they see a dog, you know, they, they relive that trauma. Now, most dogs are awesome, like my dog, so awesome, right? But they, they generalize. They stereotype dogs based on our experiences. That's what we do. This is the way the human mind works. We can be led past those things. We can be led through those things. We can be led to be healed, right? But it's going to take an experience of spirit. The spirit is going to lead you through. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The spirit leads you. The spirit leads you to uncomfortable places. And we have to be willing to do that. Um, This is how we're going to end. Praise team, you guys can come and set up here. Um, so I called it life in the spirit, and the backdrop is water. Because I was thinking about the story of Peter walking on the water, right? You know, Peter, who says, Jesus, call to me, and I will come and walk out on the water. And, and he does. I mean, it's probably really scary. But in that moment, what Peter says, actually, is, Jesus, if you call to me, because I know what you can do. I know that you, you, you are able to do miracles. I know you have the power and spirit of God. So if you call to me, then I will come. 
because I know I'm safe. I know I'm safe. I know that you aren't going to leave me to sink. And so he does it. And it's probably mad uncomfortable. He's out there and he's walking on the water. And when does Peter start to sink? When he takes his eyes off Jesus and he looks at the things that make him afraid. You know, we got to face the truth of who we are. And it's going to bring you to uncomfortable places. You know, it's reflected in the song we're about to sing, right? Spirit lead me where my trust is without borders. What is a border? Border keeps you safe, doesn't it? I mean, sorry, last political tidbit. We think borders make us safe, right? We want to build walls. Spirit lead me where my trust is without borders. God, wherever you lead. I can't say, "Mm -mm, no, no, this is too far. Because the thing is, if God is calling you, then it's going to be safe. You're going to be okay. Mm, This is making me uncomfortable. But maybe God is calling you. I just just don't like talking about this. But maybe he's calling you past this border. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Wherever you would call me, that's where I'm going. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. You guys can just start with that kind of background music, and let's just reflect on this. Brothers and sisters, in the presence of God, you are helped. You are loved. The Spirit wants to help you. The Spirit wants to lead you. The Spirit wants to change you. It's going to be uncomfortable. Sorry. There's no two ways about it. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so worth it. Can you imagine if Peter didn't walk on the waters, what he would have missed out on? Can you imagine what it must have felt like being on that water? I'm walking on water. God is real. There is nothing that is impossible. This is great. Even though he failed, even though he started to look at his fear, Jesus reaches out and he saves him again. Peter keeps falling again and again and again and again and again. Jesus never stops reaching out to save him. We're not going to be perfect in this. But are you willing to be led by the Spirit of God into deeper truth? comfortable truth? Are you willing to not turn away, not just from the moment, but from the reality that we all face? Some of our black and brown brothers and sisters are not being treated the same way as you and I are. Every statistic will tell you that. What is God doing in this moment? What is God doing in us? Brothers and sisters, before we get to exactly how we do something, anything, we've got to face this. Lord, I confess, I like being comfortable. It's a part of me. part of me that probably to my dying breath, there's going to be a battle there. Lord, I confess that. 
And even still, give me the faith. Give me the willingness to increasingly step out into uncomfortable water. To face truths I don't want to hear about society. To face truths I don't want to hear about myself. Help me to know, God, that I am helped. I am loved and I am safe. But help me, God, to be willing to let you change me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.